0: Chapter 12 of A Mayfair Magician, A Romance of Criminal Science. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit librivox.org. Recording by Campbell Shelp. A Mayfair Magician, A Romance of Criminal Science by George Griffith. Chapter 12. A deep breathless hush had fallen over the crowded court. The leading counsel for the crown had exercised his right of last reply, and had just sat down. Jenner Halkine stood in the dock looking over the sea of heads and faces below him, with eyes from which, for the time being, dazed astonishment, not unmingled with fear, had stolen their almost magic power only about a fortnight had passed since he had been arrested without warning as he was leaving his flat after lunch to pay a visit to his friend the adept he had been put into a cab and taken to bow street he had been allowed to see no one save his solicitor and he it need hardly be said was not mr bonham denyer who was just then living with harold Enstone in a state of semi-confinement which he accepted because it also meant protection in the Enstone Town House in Eaton Square. The police court proceedings had been ominously brief, and had resulted in the inevitable committal, and within ten days he was standing in the dock at the Old Bailey to answer a charge which had taxed all the ingenuity of the Treasury solicitors and their counsel to formulate anything like correctly. A thousand times he had regretted that he had not instantly taken the pitiless advice of Isa Ramal, and allowed Ram Dass to do the worst on the traitor who had betrayed him, perhaps to the scaffold, certainly to the prison. The unexpected completeness of the case against him, the existence of Sir Godfrey's diary, the clear proofs of poison furnished by the analysis of the cigars and the wine, which his victim had so much enjoyed at that fatal supper, and of the medicines which, as Sir Neville Alderson and the family doctor had stated under oath, could not but produce exactly the opposite effect to that which they had prescribed. And finally the examination of Sir Godfrey's remains, exhumed at Harold's request by order of the home secretary, all these made up a damning mass of proof which made conviction of some sort inevitable. And now what would it be? The quick death of the scaffold or the living death of the prison? He sat back in his chair in the dock, folded his arms and stared with blank eyes across the well of the court at the judge, who was running rapidly through his notes prior to giving his summing up. A little murmuring sigh and a rustle of garments broke the silence with a note of relief as the judge finished his rapid survey of the evidence and leant forward on his desk with his long quill pen poised characteristically in his right hand. He turned towards the jury and began in cold, clear tones, which sounded to Halkine something like the voice of fate itself well gentlemen i think i might say that the case which has just been concluded is fortunately for the inhabitants of these islands practically unique in the annals of our courts for my own part i must frankly confess that i find a certain amount of difficulty in performing my part of the work in hand which as i need hardly tell you is to place the legal aspect of the matter before you as clearly as possible It is your business and your duty to judge of the facts as they have been placed before you by the witnesses and commented upon by the learned counsel for the prosecution and defense. In all my experience, I cannot remember trying a case which was so difficult, because so abstruse, so uncommon, so far removed from the ordinary beaten tracks of crime, always supposing that you find that crime has been committed, as this one. To begin with, however— I think it is only right to relieve the possible apprehensions of the prisoner and his friends by telling you at once that in English law the primary charge of murder cannot be sustained. As he said this, the judge looked across at the dock. Halkine's eyes widened a little and grew brighter, and a faint flush came into his thin, sallow cheeks. A sound of numerous rustling again ran over the court, and Harold Enstone, sitting in the well of the court beside the senior partner of Lawson and Lawson, gritted his teeth and frowned, for he was not one of those who believe in the earthly forgiveness of sin. Then the judge went on. Fortunately, perhaps, for the prisoner, he is not being tried upon such a charge as this in France. The principal allegation against him is that he made use of certain hypnotic, mesmeric, or other occult powers, of which he is supposed to be possessed, to induce the late Sir Godfrey Enstone to take and continue taking— certain noxious drugs, and further that he periodically kept him under the influence of these drugs, increasing or decreasing the severity of the treatment as circumstances demanded, until in the end the unfortunate gentleman, driven into mental torment and insanity, committed the fatal act which ended his life. Now, gentlemen, as I have said, if that were proved against the prisoner in a French court, he would be, and I must say I think justly, held guilty of murder, and would probably suffer the extreme penalty of the law. The French Penal Code recognizes the use of such powers for unlawful ends as a felony, and if such use results in the death of the victim, the felony becomes the crime of murder. The English law, whether wisely or not, does not recognize these powers at all, and therefore I must ask you to dismiss all the allegations as to their use by the accused from your mind. The judge paused again as though to give the jury time to get hold of what he had been saying. The gentlemen in the box looked at each other in something like bewilderment. Halkine caught the eye of Isaramal and took comfort from his glance, and the audience settled itself into an attitude of complacent expectancy. Then the judge began again, making movements of admonition with the feather of his quill towards the jury box. Having done that, you will turn your attention to the actual facts of the case as they have been brought out in evidence, and with regard to this part of the case, I am glad to be able to say that the law is perfectly clear, save on one point which I will deal with later on. I will put the matter into a concrete form by referring to a very famous case which I have no doubt will be familiar to all of you. It was the case of a married woman who was charged with murdering her husband by the administration of his certain poison. She was sentenced to death, but the death sentence was subsequently commuted to penal servitude for life. I am sorry to say that a very widespread agitation, as ill-advised as it was ill-informed, was got up with the object of securing the convict's absolute release. It was said with some show of reason that if she murdered her husband she ought to have been hung, and if she did not do so, she ought to have been set free. It did not seem to strike any of these good people that there was another course. The evidence in the case was most carefully revised by the most competent tribunal that could be assembled. This tribunal found that the facts clearly showed that she had administered poison with intent to kill, but it was not clear that the poison she had administered was the actual cause of death. She was therefore given the benefit of the doubt, and the sentence she received was the invariable sentence inflicted for a crime second only to actual murder. That, gentlemen, is practically the question which you have to decide in the present case. Did the accused administer these noxious drugs to the deceased in order to bring him so completely under his personal control that, at his suggestion, he should make an entirely unjust and preposterous will, and did he in the second place, continued the administration of these drugs until he had driven his unhappy victim into such a condition of mental and moral ruin and collapse that the very suggestion of the word suicide or the idea of it the giving of a knife or a pistol or a razor would so act upon a mind temporarily insane as to make the final and fatal act practically inevitable now as to the facts it is to some extent unfortunate that the only direct evidence we have had comes from a distinctly tainted source, in fact, from a man who was to all intents and purposes the ally and the accomplice of the accused, a man who, knowing what was going on, was willing to hold his tongue and defeat the ends of justice for a pecuniary bribe, a man, too, who will himself have to answer charges of a serious nature before very long. If, therefore, you find that the prisoner did commit the acts of which he is accused, you must still bear in mind the fact that the evidence of the witness denier was given not in the interest of justice but for the sake of personal revenge and perhaps of personal profit if this man's evidence stood by itself i should ask you to look upon it as i should do myself with the gravest suspicion but it so happens that it is very strongly corroborated by the facts disclosed by the government analysis by the medical evidence and also, strangely enough, by the hand of the dead man himself. Lastly, the post-mortem examination has revealed the fact that the deceased was at the time of his death suffering so acutely from narcotic poisoning that if the treatment had been continued many days longer, he would certainly have died from the effects. Now, gentlemen, the judge continued, waving his quill more energetically towards the box, this brings me to the difficult point of the case. If that had happened, the charge must have been one of murder, and, in the event of the prisoner being found guilty, he would assuredly have been hung. But this unfortunate gentleman took his own life. Of that fact there is no doubt, and therefore the point to which I am going to ask you to give your closest and most earnest attention is the answer to this question. It has been proved, beyond the possibility of reasonable doubt— that the mental and bodily health of the deceased was wrecked by the influence of drugs, whether self-administered or not, and according as you believe or disbelieve the evidence that has been put before you, you will find the prisoner guilty or not guilty of the charge of administering those drugs. But now comes the second and more difficult question which you have to answer. Would the deceased have committed the act which terminated his life had he been in his right senses and in his usual health? If you say yes to that question, the case for the prosecution practically falls to the ground, since it is not an offence in English law for a duly qualified physician, such as the accused is, to administer even such drugs to a patient unless an evil attempt can be proved. But if you answer the question in the negative, then the case assumes a very serious aspect, since it is quite beyond belief that a man of the high professional and scientific attainments of the accused could possibly have administered these drugs without a full knowledge of what their effect would be. If, therefore, you find that he caused the deceased to take these drugs unknown to himself, you must also find that he did so with the intention of driving him into insanity and causing him to commit suicide at his suggestion, and in that case you will find the prisoner guilty— Of the most serious offence known to the law save one you will now be good enough to consider your verdict and in doing so i must ask you to dismiss the question of the will entirely from your mind save in so far as it is connected with the main charge with the validity or otherwise of the will this court has absolutely nothing to do the jury filed out of the box and retired to the little room in which so many human fates have been decided Halkine had already given up all hope. His defence had been necessarily a very weak one, in spite of the great ability of his counsel. The analysis of the cigars and wine and medicine, Sir Godfrey's diary and the result of the post-mortem, had forced the judge, in spite of his admirable impartiality, to sum up dead against him. He had left these possibilities entirely out of his calculations. In fact, he had not even considered them as such. In about twenty minutes the jurymen began to come back, the buzz of conversation in the court ceased, and the audience settled itself to listen to the words of fate. Halkine's eyes wandered over the box as they took their places. Some of them looked at him furtively and half-shyly, and he knew what that meant. Then his glance sought that of Isa Ramal, and the brilliant blue eyes under the dark brows flashed back a signal which he read as meaning, "'You are doomed, yet hope!' when the jury were in their places, the clerk of arraigns rose and asked the usual question. "'Gentlemen, are you agreed upon your verdict?' "'We are,' replied the foreman. "'Do you find the prisoner guilty or not guilty of the charge of administering noxious drugs with intent to do bodily harm?' "'We find him guilty,' came the ominous reply. "'Do you find that the late Sir Godfrey Enstone committed suicide?' Well, under the influence of these drugs and that his suicide was the result of their effects we are fully agreed upon that point also was the decisive answer then that amounts to a verdict of guilty on both counts the foreman bowed and sat down let the prisoner stand up now came in clear hard tones from the judge's lips and again the ominous penfeather began to move this time towards the dock Halkine stood up and faced his fate, grey-white, but firm lipped steady-eyed, and composed. "'Jenner Halkine,' the judge began, "'after a patient and careful trial, you have been convicted—and I must say most justly convicted—of a crime unparalleled in its diabolical ingenuity and its pitiless cruelty. Morally, though, I am sorry to say not legally—' you are guilty of something worse than murder. Fortunately for you, but unfortunately for the interests of justice, the hitherto unheard of crime of procuring self-murder is not known in English law, otherwise the sentence which I am about to pass upon you would be the richly deserved one of death. It has been clearly proved that you possess talents of a very high order, great learning and possibly certain powers which are given to few mortals." you have used them in the light of full knowledge to commit as you thought with safety to yourself the crime which i am glad to say has no parallel in the history of wrongdoing leniency in such a case as yours would be an insult to justice i cannot send you to the scaffold but it is my duty to protect society against such a miscreant as you have proved yourself to be therefore it is my duty to pass one of the heaviest sentences that the law allows and that is that you be kept in penal servitude for the term of your natural life. The judge gathered his papers together. Jennifer Halkine took a last look at the world he was leaving. A warder touched him on the shoulder and he turned away to the top of the steps leading to the tomb of the prison. And while the clerk was calling out the next case, most of the audience rose to go to lunch and to talk over the most famous case of the year. End of chapter 12